0: say worthy is the king who conquered the grave, worthy is the man who was slain. of my love. Your blood Blood flows through through the light
1: Father, we have come today in gratitude and thanksgiving that that we don't have to live in fear because we're your children. We pray that in worship today that will become clearer and clearer to each of us, that we may embrace this gift you've given us. Be glorified in our worship today as we offer it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. It is great to see all of you as we gather for worship today. Glad that you're here, whether it's is your first time here or you are here regularly. We we love having you here and uh, gathering together in worship. This week at the at Houghton College is the Faith and Justice Symposium, and uh, this is an important time in uh, the life of the campus as well as the the wider uh, community. And Brian Webb, who is in charge of this event, is going to share just a moment uh, of. Uh, an invitation to you and a little bit of explanation about what will be happening. Good morning, everybody.
2: I'm going to try really hard not to say good morning, Fillmore Wesleyan Church, because I give the announcements at my church in the morning. So I'm just going to get it out of the way so I don't accidentally say it. But excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, as Pastor West said, uh, this coming week is the sixth annual Faith and Justice Symposium up at the college. Every year, this is an opportunity for us as a community to engage in an important issue of justice, not only something that's important to society at large, but also something that's really important for our faith as well. So we explore the topic through several days of speakers and activities, and just wanted to give a, a real quick rundown on some of the highlights coming up this coming week. The theme for this year is loving our neighbors, immigrants, and refugees. Though honestly, that last line of that song, I feel like could be the theme too. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Um, We could have easily made that as well. But the symposium starts on Wednesday with Jenny Yang. She's the Vice President for Advocacy at World Relief, uh, which is a great development organization that advocates on these and other important issues as well. She'll be speaking in chapel on Wednesday. On Thursday evening, we'll have a music and art event in the Campus Center Lounge. Uh, That's gonna involve a lot of Houghton students both from this campus as well as from the Buffalo campus coming down and sharing their stories. Uh, particularly students who come from immigrant and refugee backgrounds uh, sharing their stories and their music as well. We have several students who will be sharing music from different cultures around the world. We're going to have a participatory art project that you can engage with as well as an art auction and, uh, and numerous other activities as well. And Friday we'll have uh, another chapel speaker, Danny Carroll is an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. Be speaking, and then Friday afternoon we will have workshops, one thirty, two forty-five. Including a workshop, uh, some of you may know David Drury with the Wesleyan Church will be coming to present workshops as well on what the Wesleyan Church is doing to engage with this issue. And then we'll be closing out Friday evening with a film uh, called Documented, which chronicles the real-life story of a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who added himself as an undocumented immigrant. Uh, Chronicles his journey as an individual and uh, his experiences in that respect. A full listing of schedule and details can be found on the Houghton website. Just go to the website and search for Faith and Justice, and you can find plenty of details there, but hope you'll be able to join us for that. Thanks.
3: Good morning. Our Wednesday night program is scheduled to start this Wednesday. Um, And we're very excited about it. We have lots of fun things we're doing this year, but we do not have enough volunteers, and we won't be able to have the program without volunteers. Um, In the Christian Education Building on the first floor, we have a sign up schedule. I just need you to come for an hour and play with kids. There's no prep, you're just hanging out. I have everybody, I need somebody to run games, so if you like to do games, but I have all my leaders in. we have everything you need just come and hang out with the kids for an hour Um, I especially need this semester filled up if I don't get it filled up we won't be able to have the program and our kids love it and it's a fun time for them to play and have fun and to learn about Jesus so if you can please come to the Christian Education Building first floor, sign up and you'll have a great time thank you
1: there is an insert in your bulletin this blue one about the WNJV programs and it gives some specific things ...that uh, we're looking for, as Emily said. Primarily, we're looking for people who will just come and engage with the children. And uh, you can see there are a variety of ages, different breakdowns. Uh, If you love doing games, that's one of the leadership places that they need. And you can see the dates there. And this year, we're also doing something a little bit different. Once a month, we're having an intergenerational gathering, and you'll hear more about that as we move forward. Um, That's why there aren't quite as many club dates listed there. But... This is an opportunity for us as church to practice what we preach, and that is that we love children, that one of our callings is to nurture the faith of our children in a variety of ways. We do that through Sunday school, nursery, children's church, junior church, as well as the Wednesday night program. So we really appreciate you prayerfully considering being involved. And uh, please uh, let Emily know. You can let one of us know. We'll pass that along to her as a sign-up sheet, as she said, in the CE, uh, in the CE first floor um, thank you in advance for helping to make this, uh, this Wednesday night program a viable program for our children. And I think we'll all gain from serving, uh, as Jesus says, uh, in some ways the least of these. So easily uh, people who need us. And so this is an opportunity to do that. Uh, in addition to that, we also are wrapping up the volunteers for nursery. Today's the last day to sign up for that. If you would like to work in the nursery, haven't yet signed up, there are some... Sheet's on the back table, and uh, we'd love to have you pick one of those up. And uh, again, you can uh, give those to uh, one of the staff people, or you can run it over to the office that the schedule will be made tomorrow. Um, the uh, The other thing is to make you aware of is I'm hosting a membership class next week, and uh, either Monday or Tuesday night, and uh, so if you're interested in joining the church or knowing more about what it means to be a member of the church and what we're about, please let me know in the next couple of days, and we'll get that class organized for you. As uh, we continue in worship, we want to give you the opportunity to give back to God from all the ways in which He's blessed us. So we're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
0: Alone in my sight
3: Lost without hope, no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in
1: When death was arrested, my life began
0: is so heavy.
1: together if uh, you'd like to come and use the altar rails, the place where you offer your prayers, come and join me. Father, we come to you today in gratitude for um, all of your blessings, for the cross that in Christ sets us free. We pray that you will overwhelm us with that truth, even as we worship today. Father, as we gather, we know that there are many needs that we represent, that we come with on our hearts and minds, and this morning we pray for all who are struggling with life being different than we would want it to be. We pray for all who are grieving and ask for your comforting, healing presence in them. We pray for all who are struggling with illness and sickness and pain and ask for your healing grace in their lives. And we pray today especially for Mildred Berry and Doris Sepian. For Blanche Weaver and Tammy Dunmire and Luke Heisinger, for Wade Marsh, for Sheldon Emerson and Bob Jobert and Laurel Bucher, for Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, for Phil Muker, for Mike Raybuck and Bev Retz. and for Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, for Dick Gould and Emily Cricklar, and for others who may be on our minds this morning. And we feel the burden of their struggle. Or perhaps our own struggle. We pray for your healing grace. Father, we pray that you will continue to work in our homes. Bring reconciliation where there has been division and fracture. Bring hope where we may feel a sense of despair about life and circumstances. And give us grace to see you in the future ahead. That we may find it difficult to experience and trust Father we pray that you will fill us with compassion for people in this world who are hurting often from circumstances that are out of their control We pray father for for those who serve you around the world We think especially of believers in post-Christian Europe who are are sharing the love of Christ with new refugees from various places including the middle east and as new churches like the new wesleyan church in the czech republic that that they will be places of hope and healing places of grace and mercy to people who feel perhaps hopeless we pray father for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who who live every day with the with opposing religions that uh, that are so much more visible and and are so much a part of the culture in which our brothers and sisters live. They not only face threats, but just the the pressing of, of the cultural dynamics of living in some countries of the world and particularly in West Africa. We pray for endurance and grace and strength, even in places where the church ...is a great minority. Father, we pray for refugees around the world... ...and ask for your grace upon them... ...and even this week for the Faith and Justice Symposium... ...as we we think about immigration and refugees... ...that you will continue to soften our hearts to their great need. We pray for those who are recovering from recent disasters... ...and even terrorist attacks. We pray for racial healing in our nation and the nations of the world... And that we would be at the forefront of being agents of healing. We pray, Father, for the ministries of this church. We ask for your grace upon our Wednesday evening kids clubs. And we pray that this will be a time of helping our children know who you are and experiencing the church. And as as the church, may we surround them and engage with them and, and be willing to sacrifice to be a presence for you in their young lives. And Father, we pray for churches around us. We think today of the Bolivar United Methodist Church and Pastor Hudland and ask for your grace upon her and her congregation that this group of believers would be a beacon of light in a world of darkness. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. We thank you for your grace in each of our lives. Be glorified in how we live for you and our witness for you. As we continue to worship you, we pray all of this through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.
3: Just a reminder that after uh, the scripture reading, children can be released for Children's Church. There is no junior church today. The scripture reading comes from Galatians 3, 23, 4-7. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For For you are all alone in Christ Jesus, all one. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you, no, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we sing.
0: Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, virgins of God, born of his feet. Submit!
1: Be seated. Identity is important to all of us. I suspect that there are many times throughout uh, our days, our weeks, when we're we're asking ourselves, not so much who am I, but who am I in comparison to other people? How do I find value and worth? How do I know that, that my life has meaning and significance? And what we're really talking about is identity. Who are we? And what makes us? ...who we are. Our identity is a struggle... ...because it is such a fragile thing... ...for us to think about. A comment from someone... ...can shatter our identity. A a disappointing experience... can, uh, ...can cause us to question our identity. It is a constant struggle... ...for all of us to figure out... ...who we are. What's our identity... And we look in a variety of places. You see it all around us. People are looking for identity in in their uh, in, in who they, how they see themselves, uh, sexually, how they see themselves in their accomplishments, how they see themselves in their, in what they own, what we possess. We are we are we often place our identity in in the, the how we important we think we are to other people. And all of those things have a place. But ultimately, they fall short. Because ultimately, all of those ways of figuring out who we are have to do with something about us. And when we read the scriptures, we find that true identity is found in God. And how God sees us. God at work in us. And this brings us to chapter 3 of Galatians, and as it begins, we didn't read all of it, but as it begins, Paul says to them, what is wrong with you? He says in one of the translations, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has tricked you? That you now believe that your identity is is in what you do, as opposed to who you are in God. He says you started out, you, you you started out with things right, and you started out recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and the Holy Spirit identifying who you are in God. But somehow you have allowed that to be twisted and turned back to who what you do. And a couple of times in this in this chapter, he calls them foolish. And he says to them, it is foolish to think that you can find your identity in anything you do. Even something that might be as good as the law of Moses. As opposed to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whose desire is to bless you. Whose promise is to set you free. Instead of being chained to the law of rules and forms and structures. Because here's the thing he says, he actually says in verses uh, 10 and 11, that if you think that way, you're under a curse. Paul uses really strong language here with with these people. And in this letter, about as strong as he does in any of his letters, because he's so concerned about the direction their life and their decision is taking them. But he says you are under the curse if you think the law is going to give you your true identity. Because if you follow the law, you have to follow all the law. And he says, I don't know of one single person who can follow every single letter of the law. And that means if you think your identities and what you do, you're going to continually fall short. You're going to continually fail. You're going to continually mess up. You're going to continually be short of what you think you're going to be. And that's not going to lead you to hope. That's going to lead you to despair. And so he's trying to turn them back to the Holy Spirit. Now, he does say there are a couple of benefits that the law brings to the, the scenario of our lives. It's not as if God gave the law to Moses and it was, it was insignificant and unimportant. He says there are a couple of things that the law does, a couple of benefits. One of them is that the law shows us, reveals to us the sins that we're committing. If you look at verses 19 to 22, he says, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. It's sort of this way, that up until this point, it's not as if when the law was given, now people started sinning. They were always sinning. We've always been, since Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit, human beings have been struggling with sin. The issue isn't, now God gave the law, so now you're sinning. The issue is, now God gave the law, so you know you're sinning. It's as if we are running down a road to destruction, but we don't realize it. And then all of a sudden, the law comes and starts putting up signs of danger. And now we realize where our behavior is leading us. I was reading something this week, and they said, suppose you lived in a state where they had no traffic laws at all, and people kept having accidents and damaging their vehicles and hurting one another, and all these tragic things are happening because there are there are no traffic laws and no one can really be held responsible because everyone's just doing what they want to do but they're causing such damage in so many ways the solution to that is that the legislature makes traffic laws so that now people know that's right that's wrong that's a good thing to do that's a bad thing to do now we may still not do it i know none of us we always follow all the laws but but other people may now may may need those laws because We need those things. It's not as if before the laws would have come into effect that we were driving perfectly. It's just that now we realize, oh, there are things that we need to be thinking about that we weren't thinking about before. And the law is a benefit, Paul says, for that. The other side, the other thing he says is that it's a protection for us. In verse 23, he says, is, is, um. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. If the law protects us, it helps us in the same way with the traffic laws. It helps us to know here are the boundaries. Here here are the the guardrails, in a sense. If you want to continue that driving metaphor, that here here are the things that will protect you. And this is the way to keep these things from happening, to being injured, to being harmed. It's, it's what we do with children. I mean, we make rules for children and we teach children rules. Why? Because they don't realize that doing other things is going to hurt them. And so we protect them. And we, we discipline them when they start to touch a hot stove. It's not because we're mad at them. It's because we're trying to protect them. We discipline our children when they're about to run out into a busy street. It's not because we just think, hey, we don't want you to run out in a busy street. It's because we don't want them to get hurt. And we make these rules and laws for our children. And as they get older, the rules change a little bit, but they're still rules. We, we make curfews. We, we make them go to school because it's the right thing to do. We make them do homework. We have all these rules about when they go to bed and when they get up and all the, what they have to eat. And what, whether they like it or not. And in fact, most children don't understand it and probably don't like most of the rules that we give to them. But it's in their best interest. And it helps them. He goes on to talk about how the law is, is a, a, um, a guardian until Christ came. And it protected us. But there is another sense of this idea of guardian. It's also translated um, teacher, schoolmaster, instructor. The word is pedagogue. And except that it's not exactly talking about the teacher. In that culture, a, a child who grew up in, a, in an affluent home was educated. And the schoolmaster educated them. But that's not the guardian. The guardian is a slave in the household who made sure that the student made it to school. The the guardian was the one who said, when they got home, do your homework. The guardian was the one who said, go to bed now because otherwise you won't be ready to learn tomorrow. The guardian was the one who kept the child on the right track, not the one who taught the child. And Paul is saying this is one of the benefits of the law. It keeps us on the right track. It moves us in the right direction. It it helps us as children. But the law has limitations. Because the law is really about people who are spiritually immature. The Holy Spirit. One of the blessings of the Holy Spirit, he tells us, is to move us from immaturity... ...to maturity. Moving us, as he says in chapter 4... ...from being, having a mindset of slavery with God... ...to a mindset of being children of God. It is moving us from immaturity to maturity. I think we often have a mindset... ...that the most holy people... ...are the people who know how to obey the rules best... Paul is saying the most holy people are the people who are so in tune with Jesus, they don't need rules anymore. I know we're sitting there thinking, oh, wait a second, we need rules. Yes, we do, because none of us have reached perfection. But the goal of maturity is not to help us obey the rules better. The goal of maturity is to live in such a way that we don't need the rules anymore. That's what happens when you move from childhood to adulthood. As our children get older, the rules change. We lessen them. We, we don't need to tell them, don't touch a hot stove. We hope by the time they're teenagers, they've learned that lesson. Though we probably all, even as adults, have burns on our fingers and things when doing crazy stuff like that, right? But, but we, it's not the rule. It's just that, that we don't know that we shouldn't do that. We just learn to do it. And it's not so much about rules as it is relationship. I I was thinking about this this dynamic of, uh, for for some of you who may be college students or others of you think back to a time when that was the case for you, when you, the, the difference between being a high school senior, the summer of your high school senior year, and your relationship at home to your parents, to going off to college and then coming home for Christmas break for the first time. I mean, I vividly remember how difficult that was because I had now spent three months living on my own, doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whoever I want to do it. And now I come home for Christmas break and my parents had a hard time adjusting to me being different. And I had a hard time adjusting because I wanted to go home and say, I can do whatever I want. And they are still thinking, well, you're still a high school student who needs some rules and boundaries. And it's a tug of war. In fact, raising our children is a whole tug of war. We're continually trying to figure out how much we let go, how much we release. Because ultimately, our goal is not to keep our children under the rules. Our goal is to let let them be free. You're teaching your child to learn to walk. We're doing that with Emma right now. She wants to hold our hand most of the time. And it gets so from hand to one finger, you know, as you progress... And, and it's, it's cute and we like doing it and we're glad to help her. But our end goal is not that we would get, she would get to high school and we'd still be walking along with her holding her fingers, right? I mean, that's not the end goal that we have in mind here. The end goal is that we would release that and she would be able to do that on her own. And if she went to high school and one of us was with her and she was holding our finger walking through the halls of high school, they would probably call in someone to give us some inkblot tests and other things that needed to evaluate what in the world's going on with this family. That's not our goal. And it's not God's goal that we live by these rules that helped us when we were immature. God's goal is that we would be set free from the need for rules. Because our hearts are so turned to him. That we live in this freedom of, of relationship with God that is not based on immaturity but on maturity. And the Holy Spirit does that. It's one of the greats. So What's the freedom of the Holy Spirit. It's setting us free. And when that happens, it changes our identity. We become different people. And we see people differently. And that's why when you get to the end of chapter 3, he says, There is now, therefore, through the Holy Spirit, no longer Jews or Gentiles, males or females, slaves or free. We see each other, not through the class structures that our culture creates... But is all of us as equals free in Christ? There's a Jewish prayer that often the men would pray, that they would say, Thank you, God, that I'm not that I wasn't born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And you can see some of that mindset creeping into the Galatian church as these as these uh, Jewish people from Jerusalem have come and, try, and are trying to, to get them to see life through that lens. But that's, those are rules. And rules always bring about divisiveness. Who's in, who's out. Who's good, who's bad. Who's more worthy, less worthy. More valuable, less valuable. More significant, less significant. When you look at this list of people that he gives you, these categories of people, you can see in that culture, that society, a a distinction between those who would be considered more significant and less significant. And Paul is saying, in the kingdom of God, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we start becoming mature people, those divisions disappear. There's equality, not divisiveness. And isn't it interesting that he throws in here this idea of not just about Jews and Gentiles, which the whole discussion up to this point has been about, and the rest of the discussion will continue to be about, but he not only talks about Jews and Gentiles, he talks about males and females and people who are slaves and who are free. And I think the reason he does that is because, more than likely, this language was a part of their baptism ritual in the early church. That when a person came to be baptized, they made a declaration that through the Holy Spirit in my life and Christ in my life, I no longer see people with these categories. I see them the way Jesus does. That we are all equal in Christ. That we are all equally valuable and significant in Christ. And it changes the whole dynamic of how the church operates. And far too often the church has been locked into these same kinds of categories of divisiveness and and judging people. And we make value judgments about people based on even things like this. Nationalities, races, gender. What people occupations, education. We have all kinds of ways in which we divide people and that's not what the kingdom is designed to be. That's the result of sin in our lives. What Paul is trying to say, Let's, when the Holy Spirit is a part of your life, when the Holy Spirit changes you, when you live and your identity is in the Spirit, you want to go back to the way God intended it in creation and that was male and female. He created them equal together. And races equal together. And other classifications equal together. And it's not as if those classifications disappear. It's not as if now we're we're all the same. God, I think the sameness must bore God because he has so much creativity about all that he creates. It's just that who we are, how, all the things that differentiate us are not ways of making us less or more valuable. They just bring they just bring diversity to our unity. And that's why he talks about baptism here. When we put on the clothes of baptism, we are asking God to give us his eyes, his vision, his focus, his understanding through the Holy Spirit. But it's not just about how we view other people, it's how we view ourselves. Because too often the church has sent a message to different categories of people, you are less valuable. I talk to people all the time who struggle with being less valuable. And something someone in the church has said, a message that the church has sent, and typically it has to do with one of these categories, has ingrained into our minds, our psyche, our understanding of who we are, that we are less valuable because we aren't this, because we don't do that, because we aren't there. And that's not of Christ. Because what Paul ends up saying is this, as this section comes to an end is that when you boil it all down, we're children of God. When you boil this thing down, he's saying your identity in Christ is rooted in the fact that you are children of God. Sons and daughters of God. And no one who is a child of God is less significant than anyone else. Less valuable, less important, less loved. Historically, we have had a a struggle of, of seeing God in one of two ways, predominantly. That God is a, primarily the image of God is Him as a judge or God as Father. And they are both images that we see in Scripture, no doubt. But when, we're, when our primary, predominant image of God is as judge, we typically then to think of our lives in legalistic terms. And the law comes back in, and our relationship with God is, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? But when our primary emphasis of God is Father... Then it becomes about relationship. And I and I do what I do because I'm loved. Because I love my father and because my father loves me. And in those moments we cry out, as Paul says, Abba, Father. And sometimes that is seen as sort of a, a childish, sort of almost childish gibberish about God. Dad, dad. And there maybe is something to that. But I think it's so much bigger than that. I think it is this intimacy of relationship that comes about when we are mature children of God. And we can cry this anytime because we are children of God. But ultimately, God is looking for a relationship with us that is mature. And we can have the kind of dialogue in prayer. We can have the dialogue through the scriptures. We can have the dialogue through our conversations with God of honesty and trust and openness that isn't based in rules and forms and structures, but is based in love and grace and ultimately in faith. Because when you boil all of this down, it comes back to we're children of God, not because of something we do, but because of what God has done in Christ. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 4, at just the right time, God sent his son. Under the curse of the law, Christ came to save us, to redeem us, to make us his children. Over and over again in this section, in these passages, Paul talks about, it's about faith. The call of the gospel is not measure up, do more, get better, work harder. The call of the gospel, the call of Christ is is trust me, have faith, believe, accept, receive. And out of that, we begin to do and act and be. And he says throughout these verses, talking about Abraham earlier on, he says, it's not about the law of what you do. Because the law didn't even come into effect 400 years after Abraham lived. It's about faith. It's always about faith. And so he writes in Galatians 2:20, "The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me." That's what we keep coming back to. It's not about measuring up to some standard. It's not about following a certain set of rules that we can check off. It's about trusting God. Who through the grace of Christ has come and set us free. And made us his children. And all he's asking of us is to receive it. To believe it. To trust And so we come to this table this morning. This is a table of grace. Everything that we do at this table is because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. As we come to this table, we are reminded and we engage in Christ who died for us. And we remember and we engage in Christ who has said he is coming back for us. And in the meantime, we keep trusting and believing that God is who he says he is. And that allows us to be who he says we are. Children of God. My prayer is that as we come, as we receive these gifts, we will embrace who we are in Christ. And we will go forth to live as his children. Holy Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ and for the gift of of grace and mercy that invites us to live in in the freedom and the grace of Christ. Father, help us to trust you. For the first time, for the hundredth time, every day. To live our lives in faith. That you are who you say you are. And that we are who you say we are. Father, pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake today. Let it be food for our souls. Let it be food that leads us to faith and trust. And may we be reminded that we are your children through the grace of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then return to your seat by the outside aisles. If you'd like to stay and pray at the altar rail, it's always open. If coming to the front is difficult for you or you simply prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the, the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with a, the with a desire to, to know your identity in Christ as His child, and come, receive these gifts, our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
0: Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me My name is graven name on his hands My name, name is risen on his heart I know that while in heaven he stands No tongue can bid me Deep heart No tongue can bid me thence. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me all. Thank you. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice.
1: Children of God, may you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Go forth to live in your inheritance.